Good morning, saints. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24 will be our text this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. And I do now invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. It's good and right for us to remember that he is the only true God and that this is his word. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, your beloved Son, coming into the world to save sinners like us. Remind us today by your Spirit, through the proclamation of your word, who we are in Christ, all by your grace and unto your glory. Encourage us, Lord. Help us marvel at this great salvation that we have and the relationship that has been established with you by Jesus himself. And Lord, for those in my hearing who may have not learned Christ, would they learn Christ today? Have your way in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you may know, we are in the second half of the book of Ephesians, wherein Christians are being encouraged and are being exhorted to go about their daily lives on the basis of their relationship with and union with the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Christians, those who have trusted in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, have been given a new status in Christ. And that new status is to be expressed by a new direction in life. We have a new status in Christ, and that results in a new direction in Christ. And this new status is really the position that we have been given through our salvation, and we've heard about it week after week after week, beginning in Ephesians chapter 1 all the way through Ephesians chapter 3. You might remember, if you've been with us, that God the Father blessed us and chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. I'd like to pause there because that's amazing. And sometimes that's just Bible language to us. And we know that. So let's pause there from God the Father blessed us and chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's amazing. Such that our salvation was arranged 
if you will, by God the Father. And then God the Son, that is Jesus Christ himself, came into the world through the Virgin Mary to redeem and forgive those chosen by the Father through his blood. That is through the sinless life and the substitutionary death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, believers have been redeemed and forgiven by God. We should be encouraged by that, such that our salvation was accomplished, if you will, by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And then we're told that God the Spirit sealed us as we heard and as we believed and as we were saved by the word of truth. That word of truth is the good news of Jesus Christ. Moreover, we're told it is God the Spirit who abides in us believers, who is the guarantee of our inheritance that we await in Christ Jesus. And so we could say that our salvation has been applied, if you will, by God the Spirit. These are all things that we've been learning as we worked our way through the book of Ephesians. And this new status that we have in Christ through our salvation by grace and to the glory of God alone, it encourages us. Dare I say it excites us such that what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9, we exclaim those realities ourselves and we say, for by grace we have been saved through faith and this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God so that not one of us can, vote, can boast. We marvel and we rejoice in the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? But beloved, do not overlook the fact that our new status in Christ not only enables, but also demands a new direction of life. Let me say that again. Let us not overlook the fact that our new status in life, our new situation in Christ, not only enables, but also demands a new direction in life. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 speaks of this new direction, as it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? That we should walk in them. And really, Ephesians chapter 4 through chapter 6 is nothing other than an exposition of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It's no coincidence that we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we should walk in good works, and that Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 tells us five ways in which we are to walk so that we might stand firm as directed at the end of Ephesians 6. You may remember we are to walk in unity. We are to walk in unity. Chapter 4 verses 1 through 16. We are to walk in holiness. Chapter 4 verses 17 through 32. We are to walk in love. Chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. We are to walk in light. Chapter 5 verses 7 through 14. We are to walk in wisdom. Chapter 5 verse 15, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, so that we might stand in warfare. 
chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Our status in Christ necessitates, enables, and commands a walk that displays that status, and that is rooted in that status. And so here we are this morning, and we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of the second way to walk. We're to walk in holiness. Again, chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, or as verse 17 explicitly puts it, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And last week, Pastor Jeff Lewis preached, preached uh, that passage in Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19. And what does that text teach us? It teaches us that Gentiles, that is pagan unbelievers, they have a different position and therefore a different practice than Christians do. The Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. And that's because of the position that they're in. What is that position? They are first, darkened in their understanding, the text says. They are second, alienated from the life of God. They are third, hardened of heart. Therefore, we should expect, if that's their position, for them to have a practice that follows that position. They ought to have a different walk than Christians do as they give themselves up to sensuality and are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We shouldn't be shocked by the way that unbelievers live, brothers and sisters. So let us not be shocked. And what we have in the remainder of chapter 4 is the same pattern, if you will. The same pattern that we see in verses 17 through 19, but instead of the position and practice of unbelieving Gentiles, what we have is the position and practice of Christians, the position and practice of Christians. And so our passage, verses 20 through 24, explains the position of Christians for the purpose of encouraging the practice of Christians, which we'll get to next week in verses 25 through 32. In other words, verses 20 through 24 really serve to recall the realities of chapters 1 through 3 to remind believers of their position in Christ for the purpose of facilitating their walk in holiness, once again, which will be specified for us in verses 25 through 32. And so this brings us to the main idea of our text this morning. Ephesians chapter 4 Verses 20 through 24 establishes two aspects of learning Christ so that a true understanding of your position in Christ would lead to proper practice in Christ. Or we could say it this way, Ephesians chapter 2, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 4 verses 20 through 24 establishes two aspects of learning Christ so that a true understanding of your calling in Christ would lead to correct conduct in Christ. Or we could say the same thing, but put it this way, that you might understand your new identity in Christ, such that you might have new ideals in Christ. However you want to think of it, we have a position that our lives should manifest, should display position and practice. And so there's two aspects of learning Christ so that a true understanding of your position might animate, encourage, lead to proper practice. What are those two aspects? First, a negative aspect, negative learning, and then 
a positive aspect, positive learning. And as you can see from the outline, the details provided for the positive aspect far outweigh the details provided for the negative aspect. So we'll begin with the negative aspect, but get into the details of the positive aspect. Let's begin right there, negative aspect. Look at verse 20 with me, please. And what I mean when I say negative learning is that there is a way not to learn Christ. And that's what we're told in verse 20. It says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. But that is not the way you learned Christ. And so what we have in this verse is, is a strong contrast, an emphatic contrast with the preceding three verses, and it is anticipating for us the positive aspect, which we'll see in the next four verses. It's like a, a logical portal that connects the preceding passage and the passage that follows. In what way is the question? Paul says, you did not learn Christ in that way, or that is not the way you learn Christ. Well, in what way did the church not learn Christ? And this simple verse simply reaches back to the manner in which the Gentiles function in verses 17 through 19. The way that the unbelieving Gentile mind functions is not the way that the church came to learn Christ. There is a way in which Christ is not to be learned. The way of the world, the way of pagan Gentiles in this case, is not the way that we who call ourselves Christians learn of Christ. Or we could say the manner of the Gentiles is not the way that the church learned Christ. Or the, the conduct of the world is not the way in which the church learned Christ. And we have already briefly reviewed verses 17 through 19. And really, if there's one takeaway from those verses regarding the way in which the unbelieving world learns or conceives of spiritual realities, it should be this. That they lean on their own understanding. That they are wise in their own eyes. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that the text tells us that they're futile of mind. Verse 17, that they're darkened in their own understanding. Verse 18, that they're excluded from the life of God. Verse 18, that they're ignorant. Verse 18, that they're hard-hearted. Verse 18, that they're callous. Verse 19, this is the position of unbelievers. And so it's wrong and unhelpful for them to lean on their own understanding if their own understanding has been wrecked by their sin. And let's pause for a moment here. Because sometimes we can come off a little arrogant, and yes, I'm talking to us Christians. Look at the world. Look at the way that they function. I would never, but wait a minute. There's not one of us in this room. There's not one person on the face of the earth that was not in that position at one point or another. As a matter of fact, we already saw this in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, And you, he's talking to Christians, 
And you, church of Ephesus, you all were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once, what, walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's the position that each and every one of us has been in. And unless and until you understand that, the, the next verse doesn't have the effect on you that it should. Why do Christians love Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4? Because they understand the manner in which they once walked. And so when we get to, but God, oh, we rejoice. Because we understand that was us. But God is able to make people alive in Christ, amen? God has made me alive in Christ. If you know Christ, God has made you alive in Christ. And, and that is what Paul is getting at in our passage. He's saying that there is a way that the unbelievers conduct themselves on the basis of their position. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Because God has graciously put you in a new position even though you were once in the very same position as unbelievers are. Well, how were we put in that new position? We'll talk about that when we get to the positive aspect of learning. But before we go there, we need to make a distinction. I, I want to distinguish between learning about Christ and learning Christ. I, I want to distinguish between learning about Christ and learning Christ. The text says what? This is not the way you learned Christ. The text does not say learned about Christ. Help us get this, Lord. Believers have learned Christ. Believers have learned Christ. A lot of people learn a lot about a lot of things. A lot of people have learned a lot about Christ. A lot of unbelievers have learned a lot about Christ. But believers have learned Christ. Believers have learned Christ. One commentator put it this way. The implication is that factual learning is insufficient. The goal is to know Christ personally. In other words, head knowledge, intellectualism, this, that, and the other isn't enough. Do you know Christ and does he know you? Do you have a personal relationship with the living God through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. True believers have learned Christ. And this initial learning of Christ occurs at conversion. What happens at conversion? If you've been converted, maybe you know. You see yourself for the very first time 
the way that Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19 lays out for us. The way that Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 lays out for us. There's this light that goes on. You're illuminated such that you see yourself as you truly are. And then you behold the, the beauty of Christ. And it's more than just that old book. It's more than just that Sunday school lesson. It's more than just that person that your grandparents or your parents may have told you about. No, it's my Lord and my Savior who laid down his life for my sin. That's what it means to learn Christ. It happens at conversion. That being said, let us not think that the learning of Christ ceases at conversion. We understand that 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 commands us to do what? To grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we know there is more than an initial learning. There's also a continual learning. Nevertheless, believers have learned Christ, not just learned about Christ. So friend, I would be remiss not to ask you where you stand. Have you learned about Christ? Or by the grace of God, have you learned Christ such that you've trusted in Christ, such that you know Christ? This verse, Ephesians 4.20, tells us how we have not learned Christ. I don't learn Christ the way that the world functions, but how have we learned Christ? Or maybe if you haven't believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, how are you to learn Christ? These next verses will be helpful. The second aspect of learning Christ is a positive learning. Verses 21 through 24. And what we have in verses 21 through 24 are many features or details of positively learning Christ. And I tried to outline them in a way that would hopefully, hopefully serve you. And those four features include active learning, passive learning, objective learning, and then transformative learning. And so let us start with active learning. And by active learning, I mean that we participate in our learning by hearing. This is what the text says, beginning of verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him. Or some of your translations might just say, assuming that you have heard him. And we have to be careful here for a moment because uh, the way that the ESV translates this text may lead us to believe that that Paul had to assume that the Ephesians had heard about Christ without knowing if they did or if they did not. However, that is not the case. Greek grammar classifies this sentence, by the way, verses 20 through 24 is all one sentence, classifies this sentence as a first-class condition. All that means is that verses 21 through 24 is assumed reality. The idea is, verse 20, you did not learn, this, learn Christ this way if you heard about him. And Paul's saying, and I know that you did. 
He's not assuming anything. He's well aware of the fact that the Ephesians heard Christ. And so what we have in verses 21 through 24 is the manner and the content of the church's learning of Christ, which Paul is certain of. And this is why maybe some of your translations say something like, when you heard Christ, or since you heard Christ, or in as much as you heard about Christ. And the idea of acting learning is that of hearing. Paul is reminding, if you will, the, the Ephesians of how they participated in their learning, and that is by hearing. Why is Paul certain of this? Well, in part because Paul was the one who brought the gospel message to them, amen? It was Paul who planted the church. He was the one who had spent three years of his life ministering and, and laying out his life and preaching and spending time with them such that when we read in Acts chapter 20, Paul says he's not guilty because he taught them the whole counsel of God. Although Paul had not been in Ephesus for a few years, he was the one through whom many of those in the church heard the voice of Christ. It was through Paul's ministry that they heard the voice of Christ. And as a matter of fact, the literal rendering of the Greek of this portion of verse 21 would read this, if indeed you heard him. Not about him, but if indeed you heard him, Christ. There's no about in the text, even though it can be understood that way. But I prefer the literal rendering. Why do I prefer the literal rendering? Because it reminds me exactly of what the Lord Jesus Christ said in John chapter 10. He speaks of a future time when his sheep would hear his voice. The voice of Christ can be heard in the proclamation of his word of truth, which the apostles preached and which we have in the scriptures. And this is one of the reasons why we preach the way we preach at this church, line by line, verse by verse, trying to expose what is in the text rather than coming up with some TED talk that sounds cool. The voice of Christ can be heard through his word such that people see and hear Christ and come to faith in Christ. The scriptures need to be expounded so that those who hear the preaching within this ministry don't hear just mere words of a man, but they hear the voice of Christ through his word. Nevertheless, it is on you to hear him. It is on you to hear him. Yes, I know that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Yes, I know that one must be born again before they can even perceive the kingdom of God. Yes, I, I know that a natural man cannot understand, cannot accept the things of God. But I also know that you are to actively participate in your learning of Christ by hearing. And Paul reminds the Ephesians of their position in Christ because they had heard Christ. They had listened to the voice of Christ. And saints... Well, those of you who have trusted in Christ, you need to be encouraged because you've heard Christ. Not the mere words of some old document, but you've heard Christ himself through his word. 
And this is supposed to be one of the features of learning Christ that perpetuates you toward walking in holiness. That you know whom you have heard. This brings us to passive learning. Continuing on in verse 21. And by passive learning, I simply mean that we are recipients. We receive instruction. It says, assuming that you have heard about him, but also and were taught in him. Not only did the Ephesians hear about Christ or hear the voice of Christ through apostolic proclamation, but they were also taught in Christ. The realm or the sphere or the location wherein Christians are taught is in Christ himself. And this is a picture of our union with Christ, that Christ comes to us through his word such that he is both the object and the location of Christian teaching. And Paul is reminding the Ephesians that they were taught in communion with or in connection with not just the apostles, but with Christ himself by means of the word. And if I can be so bold as to say that Christ comes to his people today in our context by means of his word such that he is truly with us in the word that we might truly learn him. I understand that there are many people, dare I say most people in our day and age, want some existential experience. I sensed God or I felt God or I had a vision from God or whatever it might be. I once had a man tell me that he knew that the Holy Spirit was active in his prayer ministry. Why? Because when he was praying for a person, that person began to shake. That's scary. If I have to rely on the work of the Spirit by you guys shaking or not, then the Spirit's not active right now. We, we want to emphasize the Word. Beloved, realize and hold fast to this biblical emphasis. That after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the primary means by which we experience God is through his word, whether penned or preached. And now I have to qualify things because someone's going to mishear me and, and go say something that I'm not trying to communicate, so let me do that. Don't mishear me. I am not arguing that we do not experience God. I believe in the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I believe that the Spirit is at work in us. But what I am arguing is that the presence of the word is our primary experience of God. That God uses his word to shape us and mold us and we hide the word of God in our hearts that we might not sin against him such that we don't have to go out there seeking some experience other than humbling yourself before the word of the living God and believing and trusting and submitting and rejoicing in the word of truth. Paul is saying to the Ephesians, you learn Christ by hearing him and by being taught in him, which is through the word, because Paul was the one who was there proclaiming and preaching 
the word. And so saints, those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been taught in Christ. And this is to be one of the features of learning Christ that perpetuates you toward walking in holiness. This brings us to objective learning, objective learning, the last part of verse 21. And by objective learning, I simply mean the nature of the instruction that we've, seen, uh, that we've received. I speak of the nature of our learning. It simply says this, as the truth is in Jesus. I like that. As the truth is in Jesus. And so thus far, Paul has said, you did not learn Christ in the way that the world functions. The unbelieving world functions on the basis of their futile minds, of their ignorance, and you did not learn Christ in that way. Rather, you heard Christ and were taught in Christ, thus you learned Christ. Why in the world is this important? Because the truth is in Jesus, who is the Christ or who is the Messiah. I love how Paul connects for us up front. He says in verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way. Now he's identifying for us who is this Christ. It's none other than Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene that we sang of earlier. In other words, the one whom you have learned is the source and standard of truth. The one whom you have learned is the source and standard of truth. Jesus is the absolute one. Ultimate objectivity is found in Jesus. And Jesus is the measure of all other truth claims. Jesus is the measure of all other truth claims. Or we could just quote Jesus at this point, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And take note, Jesus, who is the truth and who is the word, prayed to the Father for his disciples in John 17, 17, in this way, saying, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. I hope we get this. Jesus is the living word of truth. Jesus is the living word of truth who told his disciples that he would be with them until the very end of the age. He says that in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Jesus, again, the living word of truth, told his disciples that he would send the spirit of truth to teach them and to remind them and to lead them in truth. We see that in John 14. We see that in John 16. So that the disciples might do what? So that the disciples might preach in right of Jesus, who is the truth. And so we have the living truth telling his disciples he's sending the spirit of truth so that they might proclaim and pen the truth. So Jesus, the living word of truth. That truth is attested to in the apostles' proclaimed word of truth, as the Spirit did exactly what Jesus promised that he would do. And the truth that is in Jesus, praise the Lord for this, or we'd be in a world of trouble, is preserved in the written word of truth, the Scriptures. Or as Psalm 119, verse 160 simply says, the sum of your word 
is truth. So what I want us to see is one, the faithfulness of God, that he sent the truth in human form and that human rose from the grave and and he told his disciples while he was here on earth, hey, I'm gonna send you the spirit of truth so, so that you might preach and proclaim the truth and that you might write the truth. And then God in his faithfulness preserved that truth such that we have the word, the word of God, the, the truth that is in Jesus before our very eyes. And what we can't do is separate historical Jesus from this book. What I'm arguing is we can't separate the living word of truth, the proclaimed word of truth, and the written word of truth. For Jesus has been faithful to reveal himself to his people through his earthly ministry, through the apostolic preaching, and through the Bibles that are in our hands. Why in the world was this important to the Ephesians? Why in the world was the fact that Jesus is the truth important to the Ephesians? Well, because they lived in a world which saw itself as the standard of truth, which is diametrically opposed to the actual truth, who is Jesus. Why is this important to you and I nearly 2,000 years later? Because nothing has changed. Because nothing has changed. And so we praise God for his faithfulness, that the, the truth, Jesus himself, we have him and we see him and we see what he's about such that we submit to the word. And when we submit to the word, we're submitting to Jesus himself. We cannot rend or separate the word of God, meaning the living word of God, Jesus, and the written word of God. It is his word. And so, beloved, Jesus Jesus is the truth. And you can trust his word. Jesus is the truth, and you can trust his word. Don't fall into temptation. Don't fall into the way of the world. Because, saint, you did not learn Christ that way. Rather, you heard him and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. This is to be one of the features of learning Christ that perpetuates you toward walking in holiness. And this brings us to transformative learning in verses 22 through 24. Up to this point, we have addressed negative learning and three features of of positive learning. The first two features of positive learning speak of the manner in which believers learn Christ. They hear him and they are taught in him. The third feature of positive learning speaks of the nature of instruction in learning Christ. Namely, that nature is Jesus is the truth. This fourth and final feature of positive learning speaks of the content of our learning. The content of our learning. And I've called this again transformative learning, by which I mean that learning Christ coincides with immediate and genuine change. That truly learning Christ results in immediate and genuine change. Not perfection, but real, true, genuine 
change. What Paul provides for us in verses 22 through 24 is a reality that has already happened as a result of learning Christ. In other words, we were taught in him or the content of our teaching or the content of our teaching in Christ was verses 22 through 24. That content was to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what these Christians were taught as they learned Christ. And this is the reason that verse 25 begins in the way that it does. Look with me at verse 25. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, and then it gives us a long list of command after command after command after command. Paul is saying, you were taught to put off your old self and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. In light of that, therefore, having put away falsehood, now do this. Flip over to Colossians chapter 3 for me. It's a similar concept that is more clear in, in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 verse 9 Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 says, Do not lie to one another. That's a command. But then after that, we're going to told what the basis for that command is. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then it'll go on to give us more commands. And so the basis upon which we are commanded to function in certain ways, what we see in Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32, is because we've learned Christ, and in learning Christ, we've learned to put off, to be renewed, and to put on. And it's on that basis that we function, are to function, and submit joyfully to the commands of the Lord. And so, all that being said, under transformative learning, we have three realities that have already occurred by which we are encouraged to walk in holiness. For those of us who are in Christ, we have put off the old self. For those of us who are in Christ, we have been renewed in the spirit of our minds. And for those of us who are in Christ, we have put on the new self. Let's briefly look at each one of these. First, put off in verse 22. Again, the text says, we've been taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Learning Christ, in part, means that we acknowledge the sinful nature of the unregenerate natural man at conversion. I already kind of walked through that as we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, as we looked at verses 17 through 19 of chapter 4, Look with me really quickly at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul has this way as we work our way through the book of Ephesians to point to what we once were such that we might remember we are no longer that. 
He does that in 2, 1 through 3, but he also does that in 2, 11 through 12. He says, therefore, verse 11 of chapter 2, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Early in chapter 2, we're told of our spiritual death. We already saw in verses 17 through 19 of chapter 4 that there's this futility of mind and a darkened understanding and alienated from the life of God and ignorance and a callousness and a hardness of heart. That's the self that's been put off if you've learned Christ. That ought not be who we are in Christ. As a matter of fact, if you're truly in Christ, that's been put off. Praise the Lord. But putting off isn't enough. Putting off is not what makes us righteous and whole. It's like teaching your children. Stop doing that. Don't do that. Stop do that. Is anyone going to ever tell them what to do? Show them the way? Praise the Lord that we have a perfect father who doesn't just put off the old self, but he makes us new. And this leads us to be renewed in verse 23. It says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. If what we've heard in verses 17 through 19 is true, and it is, then we are in major need of a renewed mind. Amen? I find it interesting and helpful that of the three infinitives in verses 22 through 24, infinitives being the two put off, those two and then something words, two and verbal idea, two put off, to be renewed, to put on the new self. Of those three, two, and then added with a verbal idea, only verse 23 is the one in the present tense in the Greek. Why is this important? This indicates for us that at conversion, the regenerate man has put off the old self, has been renewed in his mind, and has put on the new self. Those are realities of learning Christ. But because this is in the present tense, this middle one, and that this is the only one in the present tense, it also gives us insight that the renewal of the spirit of the mind is a continual or repeated process for the Christian. And I think we know this by experience, and we also may know this by the word, that, that we should not be surprised by this. It makes sense that we initially receive the truth of the gospel as we are washed by those, and as we're washed by, by those same truths, those truths do what? They grip us more deeply, such that we are ever increasingly renewed by the Spirit in our human spirits. As a matter of fact, some, some verses in chapter 4 point to this. Look with me at chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. It says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself 
and love. And so we have this initial reception of the truth such that our mind is renewed, but then we have this concept of growing, that we grow. How do we grow, Christians? Reception of the truth continually on a regular basis. This may make us think of the very next verse after this passage, therefore having put away falsehood, verse 25, let each of you do what? Speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And many of us have already thought perhaps of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we are be, not to be conformed to this world, but we, are to be to, but we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so we put off, we're renewed. What else happens when we learn Christ? Look with me lastly at verse 24. It says, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. These three things happen simultaneously as we learn or as we're converted to Christ. That we put off, that we're renewed, and that we put on. I don't want us to think of them temporally. I want us to think of them in a logical order, but they all happen at the same time. That God causes us to be born again. And we've put off, and we've been renewed, and we've put on. And this indicates for us what? Real transition. Real transformation. This is what I want to really emphasize, that True Christians are truly transformed by Christ. This idea of being created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Aren't we all created after the likeness of God? Don't we read that in Genesis that we're created in the image and likeness of God? Yes, that's true. This is part of the reason why we argue against abortion because the image of God in man. That being said, we understand Genesis chapter 3, that there was a fall, a real distortion. Adam was created in the image of God, and the fall of man due to sin, as we read in Genesis 3, is a real and a true marring, a real and a true distortion, not a destruction, but a marring of the image of God in man. And so what does it mean that through conversion to Christ, we are created after the likeness of God? Whatever Adam lost in the fall was regained by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself as he came into his own world in the form of a man. And because he lived that perfect life that we're required to live, and what, because he regained what Adam had lost, those in Christ are now new creations in what sense? In this sense, in accordance with God's likeness, which is modified for us in this text, in true righteousness and holiness. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that apart from Christ, we cannot please God in any way, shape, or form? That there is no such thing as righteousness, that there is no such thing as holiness from God's perspective apart from Christ. 
such that when we have neighbors who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and they're good people, that's from a human perspective. We all have unbelieving friends who we know and we love and they're good quality people from our perspective. But from God's perspective, there is no righteousness. There is no holiness there. We must be born again and be found in Christ such that we have his imputed righteousness and we have his imputed holiness and we have his spirit that enables us to do what? To walk ever increasingly in righteousness and holiness. And those who have learned Christ have put off and have been renewed and have put on. And this is why we affirm crazy ideas that are in the Bible that make no sense to us unless, by the grace of God, we've come to Christ. What passage am I thinking of? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, and all this is from God. I'm still Kenny. I'm still myself. I, I look the same. I, I talk the same. When I go back home to Ohio, if people see me, they're going to say, yeah, that's, that's Kenny. What, what, what are we talking about, this, this new creation? Well, I also go back home and people say, that's not Kenny. Yeah, he looks the same. and Yeah, he might act the same some of the times, but he's, he's not laughing at the jokes he used to laugh at. He, he's caring for things that he never cared for before. There's something different about him. Well, why is that? It's because we're talking about a, a spiritual rebirth, that we're new creations in Christ truly, that there's this imputed righteousness that enables me to behold the Lord Jesus Christ and to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to walk after him, yes, imperfectly. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about direction. And that I'm concerned for my sin and that when I fall short, I'm cut to the heart. This is what it means to be a new creation in Christ, that you care about Christ and his word. Are you a new creation in Christ? Have you learned Christ? Have you heard Christ? Have you been taught in Christ as the truth is in Jesus? And have you put off and have you been renewed and have you put on? Saints, all true saints have learned Christ and they have put off and they have been renewed and they have put on all by the grace of God. And this is to be one of the many things that perpetuates you toward walking in holiness. I want us to understand in conclusion big picture what, what Paul is doing here. Paul is simply doing this. He's reminding Christians of their conversion experience as they receive the truth so they might be encouraged to walk in holiness. That's what he's doing here. And that's how we should conclude as well. Have you been converted to Christ? Have you seen Christ? Do you know Christ? Do you know that the truth is in Jesus Christ? Then saint, do something for me. Stop beating yourself up. 
Stop tallying how many sins you did or did not commit. Simply remember how gracious Christ has been to you. That, that you learned him by his grace. That you were taught in him by his grace. That you heard him by his grace such that you might be encouraged to live for him. That's what Paul is doing here. He's not seeking to shame any Christian. He's simply saying God is great and I spent three chapters telling you of this great salvation that you have. And now as we get into these imperatives in chapters four, five, and six, let me still remind you in the midst of the things that you should be doing, who you are in Christ. That's what Paul's doing. That's what God is doing to encourage the church at Ephesus. And that's what God is doing to encourage the saints of Redeemed South Bay. Remember Christ. Remember who he is. Remember what he's done. Remember who you are in him so that you might be encouraged, brother, sister, to walk in holiness. Father, would you help us as your people as we prepare to hear Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32 next week, those lists of commands that are a joy to us. Would you help us to remember verses 20 through 24 that we're commanded on the basis of the new position that we have in Christ? I pray for these precious saints before my eyes and in my hearing that you would by your spirit encourage them, that you would remind them of their moment of conversion that they are not to walk any longer as the Gentiles do because they don't have the same position that they once had. But remind us, Lord, that we have a new position in Christ such that we might have a new practice in Christ. Remind us of these aspects of learning. Lift us up, O oh Lord, in Christ. Lord, for those in my hearing who may not know Christ, I pray pray that they would see the truth of verses 17 through 19. Not that they would do anything other than on the basis of those realities. Turn to Christ and call upon the name of the Lord and thus be saved. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.